This is the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, January 19th, 2021. I'm your host, Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon and I will be updating you on campus and local news. Then, we'll be re-airing an interview from yesterday's MLK Day partnership with the Black and African American Cultural Center with Dr. Ray Black of the Ethnic Studies Department. After that, I'll be delivering some national news and giving some updates on new information on technology and COVID-19. To conclude the show, I'll bring us some of the weirdest news stories from around the world. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hey, I'm Ellie Shannon, and I'm so happy to be on the Rocky Mountain Review this week. It's a very special week, not only for Martin Luther King Jr. Day happening on Monday, but it's CSU's first week back on campus to start the spring semester of 2021. To start off the semester, CSU is requiring that students, faculty, and staff get COVID-19 screening tests before going to work or class. In a statement made by President Joyce McConnell to CSU's College News, she said, quote, the pandemic preparedness team and testing team have built capacity to screen as many students, faculty, and staff as possible at the start of the semester and to mandate screening on a weekly schedule, end quote. This will be helpful with the university moving forward in this next semester now that vaccinations are being offered to some populations as well. On another note, Fort Collins may be getting an enclosed mall in the future. Foothills Mall has been with Fort Collins since the 1970s and has seen different owners in many different stores. Foreclosure proceedings have now started on the mall and if a buyer doesn't step in before mid-April, it will be sold at a foreclosure auction. Luckily, Fort Collins City Economic Health Director, Josh Burks, will be helping with the project and the new buyers of the mall to go forward. The inauguration for President-elect Joe Biden will take place on January 20th, and unfortunately, after the events that took place at the United States Capitol, the CSU Public Safety Team announced they are taking all measures to ensure the safety of our campus and the community around it. There are no credible threats to Fort Collins at this time, Lastly, for this week, CSU has contracted with the app Park Mobile to provide contactless payment for CSU students, faculty, and staff. This service offers a lower transaction fee and 24-7 customer service. This is a useful tool for those that live off campus. Thanks for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review and KCSU. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is 90.5 FM. Hello there. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and this is my local news for today here on the Rocky Mountain Review. Colorado Governor Jared Polis said during a Friday news conference that the state of Colorado was given incorrect information by the federal government about the coming supply of COVID-19 vaccines. According to J.C. Marmaduke at the Coloradoan, Colorado is still on track to vaccinate 70% of residents aged 70 and older by the end of February. But, Polis said, quote, Today I come before you extremely disappointed that we were lied to with plans of the administration to release reserved doses that were to be the second doses of the vaccine. We were ready to deploy it right away, and now we know that it simply doesn't exist, end quote. The promised federal stockpile would have amounted to about three weeks of coronavirus vaccine supply for Colorado, or about 200,000 doses. Nevertheless, 
Polis expects Colorado to receive about 78,000 doses of the vaccine next week and another 78,000 the following week from the federal government. He expects to receive 90,000 to 100,000 doses a week during the first weeks of February, although he cautioned that Colorado, quote, has been misled before, end quote, about supplies. There are about 530,000 people in Colorado aged 70 or older, so those numbers would put the state on track to achieve its goal. Colorado is likely to move to the next phase of vaccine distribution, including people 65 and older and frontline workers such as vac teachers and bus drivers. Once about half the people older than 70 have been vaccinated, Polis said. Polis attributed the matter of fictitious reserve vaccines to what he called gross incompetence on the part of the Trump administration, saying, quote, Regardless of who's president, I just want to make sure the federal government is upfront and honest with all of us at the state level. It's very frustrating and creates a, a great inability to plan when these numbers are changed around by large amounts, end quote. Fort Collins will be receiving its first standalone comedy club in 30 years with the debut of the Comedy Fort in Old Town. According to Aaron Udell at the Coloradoan, the Comedy Fort is set to open February 12th, taking over former Old Town music venue Hody's Half Note and fulfilling a years-long dream for local comedian and comedy show producer David Rodriguez. Rodriguez, a producer for local comedy shows under the name Fort Comedy, said that his drive to open the club was because, quote, there's always been rumblings that a club might be opening, and I just kept waiting and waiting, and that never materialized. I just decided to stop waiting for someone else to do it. He announced plans to open a standalone comedy club called The Comedy Fort in the spring of 2019 and leased 167 North College Avenue, the longtime home of Hody's Half Note, when the venue closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic this past summer. Given current Current COVID-19 restrictions, the venue's capacity is limited to 50 people, and show attendees will be seated at socially distanced tables of four. That is all the local news I have for right now. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and again, you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins with the Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be right back with a KCSU exclusive interview with Dr. Ray Black, a pre professor of ethnic studies at CSU. Hey Rams, we at KCSU are hoping you are having an amazing semester. With being around other individuals in classes, at work, or even with family, we might come in contact with someone who may be ill, and sometimes that means we get ill too. Here are some symptoms of COVID-19. Shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, fever, chills, muscle pain, sore throat, new loss of taste or smell, and a cough. If you are experiencing these, remember to get a hold of the testing center at 970 491-7121. That's 970-491-7121. CSU health professionals will see if you qualify for a test and get you tested as soon as possible. And remember, testing for CSU students is free. In the meantime, remember to self-isolate and keep listening to 90.5 KCSU for more great college radio content.
there. My name is Ivy Winfrey. Today I am joined by Dr. Ray Black, Assistant Professor for the Department of Ethnic Studies at Colorado State University, here to talk with us about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a part of the KCSU and Black and African Cultural Center's joint celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Dr. Black, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Why exactly do we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day? The national holiday, which Representative John Conyers asked for four days after King was assassinated in 1968, and finally uh, celebrated in all 50 states in 2000, to give you an idea of how long some of these things take, is to not only celebrate his legacy, but to remind the country of what he stood for and asked for. He wasn't just asking for rights for Black people. He was asking for the country to live up to its promise. Most people have heard of the speech at the 1963 March for Freedom and Jobs, the March on Washington, where he delivered what is commonly known as the I Have a Dream speech. Well, part of that speech, he says that the country has written Black folks a check that come, came back in marked insufficient funds where, uh, and I know this is the ATM age when everybody's paying in Venmo, but uh, when you write a check and you don't have the money to cover it in your banking account, it does what we call bounce. And the official term for bounce is insufficient funds. So the country from its inception that promised equal rights for all has never fulfilled that for African-Americans. And King is a reminder uh, of that, and those who fought for his legacy to be recognized nationally are fighting to continue that legacy. So what does Dr. King's legacy mean? The individual, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, is a symbol because he did, when asked to step up and help lead the movement, uh, starting with the Montgomery bus boycott in 1954, he it's a reminder that individuals do have to assume their parts. They do have to step up and take their roles. Uh, you couldn't have a movement without a lot of support. And at the time, you needed somebody who represented and talked to the media as basically a focal point. Um, so Dr. King's legacy is, on one part, just the recognition of the sacrifices he personally made and his efforts personally to have the country live up to its promise. The other aspect of Dr. King is he is part of a movement that didn't begin with him starting in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, 1954, or and did not end with his assassination in 1968. So it's a reminder that while he is one of the most prominent figures that have spoken up for African-American life and humanity and dignity, what we currently call Black Lives Matter. Uh, he was not the only one. And his own writings, his own efforts, his own speech are important in the history of the United States of America, if not in the world that we live in today. How uh, did Dr. King's death impact the civil rights movement? I, I'm going to uh, rephrase that it wouldn't, he didn't die a natural death as an old man. Uh, after a long, fruitful life, he was assassinated. So his murder affected 
the movement that was going on in 1968. To put this in the proper context, Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the NAACP and other long-established or newly established civil rights organizations had sought and still seek peaceful means of having the country live up to its promise. So the lawsuits that ended up in the Brown versus Board of Education case uh, settled in 1954 and 1955. The peaceful protests, the, the March on Washington in 1963 followed an, uh, an effort by the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and Maids led, led by A. Philip Randolph uh, in the Second World War. And A. Philip Randolph was part of the 1963 march to peacefully integrate the defense industries and the Department of Defense. Uh, so these movements that preceded Dr. King uh, were part of the peaceful effort to have Black lives recognized and humanity respected, going back to abolition to end slavery, the efforts of the of Reconstruction to have uh, voting rights and, and citizenship in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. So. That's where the civil rights preceded Dr. King. And after Dr. King, uh, and also the other thing going on in the late 60s is the rise of uh, what's commonly depicted as black nationalism or black self-defense where Dr. King and others of that civil rights movement were specifically nonviolent and would meet violence with nonviolence, kind of a turn the other cheek where uh, the Black Nationalists, uh, symbolized by Malcolm X and later the Black Panther Party uh, for Peace and Freedom, um, they would not be nonviolent with those who are violent with them. So both movements continued after Dr. King. There's still uh, efforts, both um, you have Black legislators like Shirley Chisholm, you know, the precursor to Kamala Harris, uh, Kamala Harris, excuse me. Uh, who work within the system um, that continue to this day. So that's where the civil rights movement did not end. It changed because when you have your leaders assassinated, then you change tactics. Uh, and when you have your organizations infiltrated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the U.S. government to destroy the efforts to achieve Black freedom, Black equality, Black humanity, then your tactics change. So no, the civil rights movement, as most people know it, did not end with the assassination of Dr. King on April 4th, 1968. Do you think that uh, Dr. King's message has new context or increased relevance um, in modern times, especially in the wake of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020? The question of Dr. King's message, and most people, I would safely assume, having taught Black history, at Colorado State for the last eight years and you know been a black studies studies scholar for the last 20, most people have two points of entry into Dr. King. Uh, one is the uh, speech at the 1963 March on Washington, where otherwise known as the I Have a Dream speech, and they only listen to certain parts of that. Or the often assigned uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Now, Dr. King wrote and spoke up until his assassination in 1968. So the question of which message are you talking about? The consistent, his message was 
that black humanity, black lives, African-American lives, Negro lives, however you want to depict Africans and their descendants in the United States, that they deserve uh, equal treatment, equal rights, equal humanity, that is consistent. As he moved from towards the end of this life when he's opposing the war in Vietnam uh, uh, and the, this famous speech that he gave at Riverside Church in 1967 called Beyond Vietnam, he notes that the move to have the resources put in place to achieve civil rights and equal rights, the resources are being diverted to the military, both the actual bodies, African-American men in particular, who were drafted and sent off to war, uh, to, could be who were then killed, injured, or maimed, or otherwise harmed. Uh, that drains the resources, but also the financial resources. So the war on poverty, as it was called, to where you have uh, housing, decent housing, decent health care, decent schools, and African-American communities, and African American communities that were created because they were specifically segregated. Uh, you know, we can go on all about how redlining prevented African Americans from moving out of black neighborhoods uh, into other neighborhoods so that you would have the black doctor and the black lawyer living next to the black criminal and the black custodian in the same neighborhood because regardless of your income, regardless of your desire, you could not move out of uh, the south side of Chicago or certain sections of Oakland or Harlem, New York, you were just prevented legally. So Dr. King's message towards the end of his life, he was in Memphis, Tennessee to help the sanitation workers there, some of whom, the, the, and the condition with the black sanitation workers was if you were got the good job, the, your, your only task is you could pick up the garbage at the end of the truck. You could never be a driver. You could never move up into the department, regardless of your skills or your abilities or desires. So he was there to support economic justice, to support resources allotted so that if you did work, you had a living wage and you had safe working conditions. That is all part of what he called the Poor People's Campaign. His message varied throughout his lifetime and understand and responded to the needs of the period. He said that people only quote like specific parts of his I Have a Dream speech or the letter from Birmingham jail. With recent times with the recent Black Lives Matter protests, uh, many politicians have pointed to Dr. King's messaging as a way to both either criticize or justify the protests. Uh, do you think there's any misrepresentation of his messaging in contemporary perceptions and representations of him, uh, both in political and non-political contexts. I have a particular view on this as a, a, a college professor who gives a syllabus every semester and lays out the plan for the semester. And it, it's inevitable that somebody comes in there, uh, soon will come towards the end of the semester. It's like, well, how do I, what's my, the understanding of my grades? Like, uh, it's right here in the syllabus. So, of course, Dr. King's message is used both positively and negatively for the speaker's purposes. Looking at the latter part of his life and his opposition to the war in Vietnam, uh, it was partially in solidarity with the Vietnamese, who were pawns in a larger uh, global war. 
looking towards his message of being judged by their character and you know what you people take as his dream yes that was his dream but the dream is also be judged on your character because you were not judged on your race that you were seen as a fully realized human regardless of your race not because of your race so yes when you say yes dr king was talking about being judged on the character but that presumes that you are being judged equally and fairly and treated fairly so yes yes dr king's message has been uh, manipulated and short-sighted. Uh, and if you read the full letter from the Birmingham jail, he calls out white moderates who stand by and do not help uh, African-Americans and others seeking justice. So yeah, Dr. King's message is definitely manipulated. Um, and it does take a little bit of effort to really look at reading his speeches, listening to his speeches. You can go on YouTube and listen to the whole speech at the march on washington listen to the whole uh the speech he gave the night before he was assassinated listen to his justifications for why they're doing nonviolent protests he has plenty of his own writings plenty of his own speaking but it's much easier to take a quote that you find on google and adapt it to your purposes let's make sure that i don't give more fodder to folks who would say that dr king's dream was of a colorblind world the idea of being judged on your character did not mean that you were not recognized and appreciated for your ancestry after the rebellion uh, in the state and uh, the in the capital of the United States uh, and the different treatment that's been pointed out widely for those who have been protesting for Black Lives Matter since the murder of George Floyd last spring which is a continuation of the protest for Black Lives Matter uh, for the last seven years since Ferguson. The different treatment in those who were armed, who had weapons, who went into the U.S. Capitol uh, and threatened and killed police officers, uh, the treatment of those terrorists as opposed to peaceful protesters in almost every city in this country and around the world, peaceful protests met with the most extreme forms of law enforcement and security and, and military force. Uh, that difference itself shows that, no, we haven't come close to recognizing African-Americans as equal the difference between those who were in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and those who have been out in the street since last spring. So no, we're not as close as we should be in 2021. We've been dealing with the issue of Africans and African-Americans being treated equally and fairly and even recognized as humans for over four centuries in the United States. If Dr. King were alive today, what do you think he would say about uh, today's fight for social justice? I think if Dr. King were alive today, he would be able to speak for himself, which is part of the problem that he was assassinated and that he is not alive today. His voice was silenced intentionally because he was speaking up for Black Lives. Uh, and he said such things in his time. I mean, the night before he was assassinated, he was saying, I know that I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. And what is that promised land where you 
as an individual, as part of an African-American community or group, are treated fairly and recognized as human. His efforts were multifaceted. We focus on uh, the civil rights efforts and, and recognition of Black humanity, but he was also fighting for equal housing. He did that in Chicago uh, under Mayor Daley. He was fighting against the Vietnam War. He was fighting against, most notably, police brutality. Uh, and these are things that we are still dealing with. So his words from 50 years ago still apply. What do we need to do to help make Dr. King's vision of our country a reality? One of the points I want everybody to remember about Dr. King is he was an optimist. He believed in the good of people. He believed in the good of the country. He believed that it was possible to live up to the high ideals that set the United States as different at its inception in 1776, different when he is protesting for equal rights in Montgomery, Alabama in 1954, and up to the moment of his death in 1968. He believed that it was possible to have all men created equal. He believed that we as a people, both individually and collectively, could live up to the ideas of uh, Christianity where you took care of your fellow person, you welcomed a stranger at the door and you gave them food and you gave them comfort. He believed in what we call liberation theology that you could liberate people uh, through Christianity, but also his understanding of law and understanding of people. And remember that Dr. King, the individual who we celebrate, did not act alone. He did. Uh, from the early days in Montgomery and uh, Rosa Parks and Claudette Coven and, and other strong women who helped him along with many men. And regardless of race and color and religion, he did have a lot of support in different communities. Uh, you know, Muslim, you know, a lot of uh, a Jewish support, a lot of Christian support, a lot of atheist support, because Dr. King's message of hope and optimism was part of the strength of his movement, part of his uh, understanding. And let's also understand that we celebrate him now as a hero, as one seeking justice. He was assassinated because people thought of him as a terrorist. People thought of him as anti-American because he challenged the status quo of white supremacy. I know that as we get into the 1960s and the rise of black arts and black power and black nationalism, uh, that he was seen as an appeaser or somebody who was not brave. But to, to, to understand that he was radical both from the inception of, of the Montgomery bus boycott up until the moment he was assassinated, uh, and his methods respected humanity, his methods respected the idea that people were inherently good. And that is something that as we go forth, uh, it, it, it gets harder and it's hard and Dr. King, he did have moments of doubt, but ultimately that is his message that we as a people, not just black people, not just men, not just citizens, not just straight, not just married, just we as a people, we as humans 
can get to the promised land where we're all treated equally and respected and honored for our existence and our, and our lives. Again, I have been talking with Dr. Ray Black, Assistant Professor for the Department of Ethnic Studies at Colorado State University. Dr. Black, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. And we do teach all of these in our ethnic studies classes. I encourage those students on campus to look into our classes, our, our African-American history and other ethnic studies classes, where we do teach about Dr. King and others uh, so that you, could, you have a, a, a wider range of information on these topics. That was Dr. Ray Black, a professor of ethnic studies here at CSU. We'll be right back in about two minutes with national news highlights. Belgium Brewing is a proud supporter of Colorado State University and KCSU. Old Aggie Superior Lager is the official craft beer of Colorado State University and is a collaboration alongside CSU and New Belgium Brewing. The result is Old Aggie Superior Lager, a light lager that gives back to the university. Old Aggie is the official craft beer of Colorado State University and brewed by Ram Band. Enjoy responsibly. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you just heard from Dr. Ray Black about the significance of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which was observed on Monday. Now for Tuesday's national news highlights. President-elect Joe Biden, who will be inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States, is expected to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline on his first day in office tomorrow. According to Michael D. Shear and Coral Davenport of the New York Times, the Keystone XL pipeline was intended to move oil from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and is just under 1,200 miles. Environmentalists have shown concern towards the pipeline since plans for it were first introduced in late 2015, when former President Barack Obama rejected the pipeline's permit in favor of transitioning the U.S. out of an oil-based economy. Biden is expected to sign a number of executive orders in his first days in office, many of which with the intention of reversing President Donald Trump's legacy. The pipeline is also not expected to be profitable if they were to continue it due to the expensive processes required unless oil barrels are selling between $65 and $100, according to some economists. Currently, oil is valued at $40 a barrel. Biden has chosen a transgender woman to act as the assistant health secretary for his cabinet. According to Will Weisert of the Associated Press, Rachel Levine may become the first openly transgender person to be confirmed to a federal office by the U.S. Senate. Levine is a pediatrician and acted as a, physical, or as a physician general in Pennsylvania. 
Biden said in a statement, quote, Dr. Rachel Levine will bring the steady leadership and essential expertise that we need to get people through this pandemic, no matter their zip code, race, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability, and meet the public health needs of our country in this critical moment and beyond, end quote. Levine graduated from Harvard and Tulane Medical Schools and is currently the president of the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. She has expertise in the opioid epidemic, medical marijuana, eating disorders, adolescent medicine, and LGBTQ plus medical treatment. The U.S. Senate has started cabinet appointee hearings for President-elect Joe Biden. According to Deirdre Walsh at National Public Radio, the Senate is still currently in transition as new senators are sworn in, and Democrats will take the majority position. Republicans currently have the majority, and Republicans who are about to end their term are still assisting in five confirmation hearings. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will serve as a tie-breaking vote if needed due to her incoming role as the Vice President and the President of the Senate. The U.S. Census Bureau Director for the Trump Administration is stepping down. According to Hansi Lo Wang at National Public Radio, his resignation comes after whistleblowers complained that he was trying to push an incomplete data report related to non-citizens in the U.S. to the public. Director Stephen Dillingham announced his retirement for this Wednesday to White House staff, and his term was set to expire at the end of the year. Ron Jarman, the Bureau's Deputy Director and Chief Operating Officer, is filling the role temporarily to make up for Dillingham's absence. Two militia members involved with the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol were jailed on riot charges Tuesday. Jessica Watkins and Donovan Crown of Ohio are self-described members of the United the Ohio State regular militia, and members of the Oath Keepers, and they are being held at County Jail in Dayton, Ohio. More than 125 people have been arrested after federal investigations into the insurrection at the nation's capital, and many have been identified based on social media posts and interviews with media and news outlets. Many of the participants declared their participation on social media openly. The violent insurrection was led by supporters of President Donald Trump, who ends his term tomorrow and is currently going through a second impeachment process with the U.S. Senate. Many members of the Oath Keepers militia are former or current police or military officers. Watkins and Crown are both facing three charges, including entering a restricted building or grounds, violent entry or disorderly conduct, and obstruction of an official proceeding. That's all for national news highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. We'll be right back with COVID-19 updates. program works through the Community Literacy Center of the College of Liberal Arts and the English Department. They bring community literacy workshops to men and women incarcerated in the Larimer County Jail and to young people residing in local crisis centers. Each week, teams of CSU students and community volunteers facilitate 90-minute creative writing workshops. For more information about Speak Out, visit csuclc.wordpress.com. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard national news highlights. Now, I'm Coda Babcock, and this is COVID-19 Updates for Tuesday. 
Colorado State University has a cumulative total of nearly 1,900 cases of COVID-19 among CSU faculty, students, and staff. All CSU students, faculty, and staff are required to get screened for COVID-19 on a weekly basis. This includes all students in university dorms or apartments, students living in a fraternity or sorority house, all freshmen or sophomores with more than one in-person class, with one or more in-person class or lab course, all staff who are regularly on campus or other university grounds in Larimer County, and all faculty, instructors, and graduate teaching assistants involved in face-to-face -face learning, laboratories, or other research activities on CSU campus or university grounds in the county. Students are also required to report any symptoms at covid.colostate.edu slash reporter. Screening signups and information is available at covid.colostate.edu. Larimer County's current risk score is high and its status on the Colorado restriction dial is at level orange, high risk. There have been 34 new positive cases in the last 24 hours, a minimum of 15 new cases per day for the past two weeks, and the county's 14-day case rate is 413 per 100,000 residents. Only one day in the past two weeks has seen over 10% of tests come back positive, and there are 52 COVID patients currently being treated in a hospital. Overall hospitalization is at 64%, and ICU utilization is at 65%. There are nearly, nearly 16,800 cases, over 170 deaths, and 290 outbreaks in the county. In the state of Colorado, there are over 376,000 cases, and there have been over 5,000 deaths among cases. Over 2.3 million people have been tested across the state. New COVID-19 cases are going down steadily in Colorado, but we must remain diligent and careful. According to a press release, Connect for Health Colorado is now operating a COVID-19 call center. It opened on November 19, 2020 and has placed 228,000 calls so far. The call center delivers results of COVID-19 tests and calls from them come from an 888 number. The call center does not ask for personal information such as social security numbers or bank information, but it does request the patient's name and date of birth. Nationwide, there are over 24.1 million cases of COVID-19 and nearly 400,000 deaths. In the past 14 days, cases have decreased by 7%, while deaths have increased by 21%. The only known ways to prevent COVID-19 without both doses of the approved vaccines including, include keeping a distance of 6 feet or more, wearing a face mask, staying home when possible, and regularly washing your hands for at least 20 seconds. Information for today's segment was gathered from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the New York Times, and the Centers for Disease Control. For access to a symptom checker and other useful tools and information, you can visit cdc.gov coronavirus. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for COVID-19 updates. We'll be right back, but stay tuned for Tech News in about a minute. Maximus, have you caught the latest gladiatorial match? No, but I plan on catching the recap on the KCSU Sports Podcast. KCSU always has and always will bring you sports. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Tuesday. The messaging program Signal has restored service after a recent surge in downloads and usage. 
The surge was prompted by a change in WhatsApp terms of service, according to Claire Duffy at CNN Business. Between Thursday and Sunday, there were 7.5 million new installations globally for the platform. Signal is well known for its encryption, which safeguards users' personal data. On Thursday, Signal was unable to send verification codes in a timely manner as a result of the surge in new downloads. This came after WhatsApp, WhatsApp's privacy policy was altered, allowing information to be shared with other Facebook companies. The last global WhatsApp update allowed for users to opt out of data sharing, but many interpreted that the new policy would not allow for that. Encryption on Signal means that no one can view the message before it reaches the recipient due to the information being scrambled until it's received. Car companies are currently facing a shortage of computer chips that is causing a delay in car production. According to BBC News, Volkswagen, Honda, and other car factories are struggling after limiting their orders of new chips after slow sales in 2020. However, since the end of 2020, car sales have regained some strength. Demand for the chips has raised as a result of this, but the chip manufacturers are unprepared for the challenge of producing the necessary amount. Gab, a social media site, is surging in popularity despite its connections to the violence in the U.S. Capitol. According to Bobby Allen from NPR, Gab has been embraced by far-right groups and individuals, including Alex Jones, who has been banned from Facebook and Twitter. Many of, many of the plans for the insurrection, including directions to avoid police, were posted on Gab. Gab CEO Andrew Torba posted, quote, In a system with rigged elections, there are no longer any viable political solutions, end quote, on the day of the Capitol attack. In another statement, Torba said that, quote, The ADL is just going to have to suck it up and deal with it, end quote, when responding to ADL demands for the federal government to investigate the platform and its connections to the insurrection. That's all for Tech News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, for Weird News with Ivy Winfrey. Hello there. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes we need to get a little bit weird. So here's some of the weirdest stories I have found today. A new TikTok trend has resulted in a resurgence in the popularity of sea shanties. According to A.J. Willingham at CNN, the trend began in late December when Scottish musician Nathan Evans posted his cover of a 19th century whaling song called The Wellerman and garnered over 5 million views. This resulted in a large new appreciation for sea shanties online, as The Wellerman reached high rankings in the Spotify charts. People began making dubstep remixes of sea shanties or sea shanty renditions of popular songs, including All Star by Smash Mouth. Television host Stephen Colbert announced that 2021 is the, quote, year of the sea shanty. When CNN asked Nathan Evans, the creator of the original TikTok, why he thinks it became so popular, he said, quote, I think it's because everyone is feeling alone and stuck at home during this pandemic, and it gives everyone a sense of unity and friendship. And shanties are great because they bring loads of people together and anyone can join in. You don't even need to be able to sing to join in on a sea shanty, end quote. An Oregon man who stole a car returned to lecture the owner of the car after he discovered a child had been left in the back seat. According to Samantha Swindler at the Oregonian, the car was stolen after the owner had left the car running and unlocked as she went inside a meat market to purchase meat and milk. In that time, the car thief saw the keys in the ignition and drove off before returning and demanding the mother take the child out of the car. Police said that the thief then began lecturing the mother and threatened to call the police on her for negligence before driving off in the car once more. 
Both the thief and the car have yet to be found. A pigeon has avoided death at the hands of the Australian government after American officials determined that the pigeon's leg band was fake. According to the Associated Press, the Australian government initially deemed Joe the Pigeon, named after U.S. President-elect Joe Biden, a biosecurity risk because his leg band signified that he was an American pigeon and thus could have a disease that threatened Australian ecosystems. When animals such as this are deemed biosecurity risks, they are often euthanized to prevent disease spread. Joe was saved after Dion Roberts, sport development manager for the Oklahoma-based American Racing Pigeon Union, said on Friday that the band was fake. Roberts said that the number on the band actually belonged to a blue bar pigeon. It was not the same pigeon as Joe, in that, quote, The bird band in Australia is counterfeit and not traceable. They do not need to kill him, end quote. The leading explanation for the fraudulent leg band was that Australian breeders produced it for their own record keeping, and that the number on it was simply a coincidence. Joe was initially found after a resident of Melbourne found him injured in their backyard. Joe has since healed and now is living healthily in the same yard. And that's all the weird news I have for today. My name, once again, is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. Hi, this is John Vanderslice, and you're listening to KCSU 90.5 FM, Fort Collins. And now for the weather. Today's weather is a little cold, but nice and sunny with a high of 38 and a low of 20. No chance of rain, but winds reaching 7 miles per hour. Wednesday will be warming up pretty dramatically to a high of 53 and a low of 29, still nice and sunny with 7 mile per hour winds. Thursday, the temperature will go down slightly and clouds will come out with temperatures between 23 and 46 degrees and winds reaching 8 miles per hour. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in to our next episode of the Rocky Mountain Review from 4 to 5 p.m. on Thursday, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now we'd like to thank thomas taylor dr ray black asher corn stephanie keel hannah copeland addison lambert elliot hutchinson jonathan gillam ben krueger ben haney dixon lawson peter walk taylor sandal and the rest of the staff here at kcsu and rocky mountain student media we couldn't do this without you and i'd like to thank you coda and i'd like to thank you ivy and finally we couldn't do this without you dear listener thank you and with that we'll see you next time Thank you.